Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. Hear what God has spoken. You shall not murder. Because it's so short, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll get into the, the text. Oh, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Lord, would you remove our unbelief? Would you remove my unbelief in thinking that it's through carefully crafted phrases that the power comes, but rather it is through your word and your spirit. Would you remove the unbelief in all of us so that your word and your spirit would affect us today? Would you build your house and protect your city, your people, whom you have bought with your blood? Amen. So I was eating at a restaurant this week, and uh, the, the little lining at the bottom of the basket uh, was supposed to look like an old newspaper. Um, had like a crossword puzzle in there. It also had some old articles. Uh, one of them was about how they had recently uh, found the wreck of the Titanic. Another one was how they were celebrating the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, which kind of tells you that the newspaper they were pulling this from was probably written about 1989, uh, which isn't that long ago. It's about 30 years ago. Um, but it's long ago enough that it had already made its way into my middle school history textbooks. You know, you can tell how old I might be. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's already sort of the, the thing has happened. It, it sits in that part of my brain that I label the past. Um, it's, it's something that happened. It, it's factual. You know, we, we can go and look it up and figure out, okay, what, what happened? Who was there? What did they do? All that sort of stuff. But it's, it's in the past. Uh, it, it sits sort of in this area that's almost cold and lifeless. Uh, it's, it's something written in a book, and there isn't much else going on with it. You know, it, it isn't something we'd see in a newspaper any longer, because it's not new information. It's old information. It's not something that's relevant to my everyday life right now. Something new from this is going to change today. Like, no. Of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall affects my life, but it's kind of had its effect. It's had its effect on all of us in the last 30 years. It's not something that's going to change and then change us. You know, the most interactive part of that newspaper, the, the part that could actually change my mind about something or affect me, was actually probably the crossword, because I might have learned a new word or something. But, you know, I, I can remember, um, you know, reading about it 
reading about the fall of the Berlin Wall in, in high school in a, in a textbook. I, I know I've heard, I can replay the sound of President Reagan's voice, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I, I know I've read firsthand accounts of people who lived on both sides of the Berlin Wall. And, and they're all true historical events involving real people with, with complex lives, but they're so removed from my life that they feel distant and lifeless. They're set in stone. They're unchanging. They're, they're trivia. More than anything else to me, they're trivia. And how different, I, I thought, looking at this and pondering it, how different is the Bible to a fake newspaper from the 1980s? Because we have something that's so much older, and yet it comes right at us. The Bible is not a far-removed account of events from the distant past. It's not far-removed. Because God himself still speaks by his word. We've seen this looking at all of the, the Ten Commandments, the first five that we've looked at, uh, how, how emphatically they are addressed to us, to you, to me. And that's true here as well. This commandment, you shall not murder, is applicable and relevant as much today as it ever has been. And it's still binding upon us, even, even as our culture would so proudly disregard it. It's not a dusty piece of ancient legislation. It's not just trivia. It is a sharp sword that still cuts us to this day. And if your heart is not stony and dead, it will cut you as we go through and look at this commandment. First, we're going to explain just the text of this commandment. How should we understand it? Then we'll consider how our culture specifically breaks this commandment. And finally, we'll see how Jesus addresses this commandment during his Sermon on the Mount. So first, let's consider the words of this commandment. Specifically, the definition of the word murder. Now, in some older, well, many other translations, but especially older translations, uh, this commandment sometimes is translated, thou shalt not kill. Now, that may have been appropriate at the time to translate it that way, but it can be confusing because murder and kill are two very different words in the Hebrew. They, they, there are different words. If, if God wanted to tell the Hebrews, don't kill, he could have used that word. But he didn't use that word. He used the word for murder. And murder always refers to ending a human life unjustly. Now, you can kill animals. You know, some have used this commandment to say, well, we should be vegetarians because it says thou shalt not kill. Well, that's not what this commandment says. And if we consider where some of the background to this commandment comes from, we can see that, of course, it can't mean that. 
This commandment is referring to human life, not animal life. If we look in Genesis chapter 9, we see this is, this is right after the flood. Noah has come out of the ark with his family, with all, the, with all the creatures that have been in the ark. And he gives a sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord makes this covenant with him. It reads, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's just reiterating the promise, the command that was given to Adam and Eve. And now, as mankind on the earth, he's giving it to them. He says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So we see here, after the flood, God broadens his gifts, right? To Adam and Eve, he gave the fruit of all the trees of the garden, except for the one, the knowledge of good and evil. And afterward, he gave, after the fall, after they were removed from Eden, Adam was to grow crops from the ground and they were to eat that. But now, after the flood, not only the green plants, but also the animals they could eat. But in this same command, God prohibits the shedding of man's blood. You can kill an animal to eat it, but you can't kill another human for any reason. Because man was made in God's image. But then what is the consequence that God gives? He says, if anyone kills a man, whether it's a beast or another human, if anyone kills a human being, they are themselves to be put to death. If someone commits murder, the punishment for that is justice meted out by God through those he appointed, as he says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning. Justice meted out by God through those he appointed in order to keep the covenant that is between Noah and his descendants and God. And the question is then, who has God appointed to bring about that justice? Well, in Israel, there are many laws that determined whose jurisdiction it was to fulfill this requirement of justice that a murderer be put to death for his crime. Sometimes it's from the victim's family, the avenger of blood, it's called. Sometimes it's the people of the city where the murder happened. But for our purposes now, we can see, we look at Romans 13, how the Apostle Paul applies this to our days, now that Christ has been raised. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. What does Paul say? He says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The governing authority has a responsibility from God to punish evildoers. And this includes capital punishment, that's a sword, for murderers. Going all the way back to the covenant with Noah. Murderers deserve capital punishment because the act of murder destroys someone made in God's image. Now, before moving on, I want to address two more things accidental death and war. And we can see this addressed in, in, in two places in the scriptures, many places, but two specifically. In Exodus chapter 21, we can see what happens uh, in different cases where death is caused. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So if death was not planned out, perhaps it was totally accidental, perhaps it was self-defense, then there was a place that the perpetrator could, could flee to and not be killed in retaliation for a death that he had not premeditated. It's this very thing that gives us all of our different concepts in, in legislation, in, in law of manslaughter, murder, premeditated, all these things, it comes out of this understanding that was it planned? Was there malice? These things matter. Was it totally accidental? Was it defense? These things matter. And God takes those into account in justice. Now what about death in the course of war? What about a soldier killing an enemy soldier? Well, one place we can go to see this is when soldiers came to John the Baptist. Many different groups of people were coming to John the Baptist to, to repent, to find out what they had to do to repent, to be baptized, to be brought into the kingdom of God. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 14, we see what the, the soldiers, the soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he, that's John, said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. John did not tell the Roman soldiers to quit being soldiers. Remember, these are the, the Romans, the, the, the big bad guys in charge of whatever for Jewish people. If there's anybody that they don't like, it's these guys. And yet John does not tell them, you know, you need to stop being soldiers for this terrible Roman Empire. No, he, he does not reprimand them for what they're doing in the course of their duty as a soldier. He only told them not to abuse their position. And Jesus and his apostles 
come into contact with and interact with soldiers fairly often. Jesus heals the centurion's servant. Peter goes and preaches the gospel to the Roman centurion Cornelius. But they never tell them, as a condition of their salvation, that they need to stop being soldiers. So murder, then, is the unjust ending of a human life. And we can't go into every single possible situation and ask, well, is this or isn't that? There's tons and tons and tons of law codes in the scriptures that help us understand this. But just as a as an brief understanding, murder is the unjust ending of a human life. Well, let's look now at three ways that our culture breaks this commandment. Three ways that with a high hand, with pride, not caring at all for God's commands, our culture forsakes God and breaks this commandment. I'll just say them outright right away. They're abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. And we'll look at these three in turn. So considering abortion, turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 39. This is right in the context of the angel comes to Mary, tells her that she will, she will bear the Messiah. She will bear him. She will carry him as a virgin because God will overshadow her. His Holy Spirit will overshadow her and she will conceive and bear a son. And then it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This is Elizabeth's womb, because Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the joy of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord to her, of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now we know from the context of Luke that Elizabeth was about six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And the fact that the baby John leaped for joy should tell us something about his own humanity. But some could say, okay, he's six months along. So at six months of pregnancy, that's a, that's a baby. It's wrong to terminate that life. But earlier, I mean, who knows? It doesn't say. But John the Baptist is not the only baby in this passage. Mary has gone from hearing the news that she will conceive and bear a son. And it says, she went with haste. There was no real time in between being told that she's going to conceive and bear a son and going to Elizabeth. She was in that moment carrying our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who could hardly have been a week from conception at that point. That pregnancy wasn't far enough along for our modern tests to tell. And yet, the unborn baby, John the Baptist, leapt in his mother's womb because the unborn baby, Jesus, had come under the same roof as him. And if, as we say, murder is the unjust ending of a human life, then we see that a baby in the womb at every stage of development is a human life. Jesus being fully and truly human for the sake of our salvation was fully and truly human right at conception. So, the second way our culture flouts this commandment, euthanasia. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at a passage here. This is right after Saul, King Saul, and his son Jonathan are killed in battle with the Philistines. And we have here a young man coming and letting David know that this is what happened. Saul has died. He's trying to congratulate David. And David basically says, how do you know Saul is dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So Saul is wounded and dying. He asks for someone to kill him so that he doesn't fall into the hands of his enemies. Now, this Amalekite doesn't actually kill Saul, but he does take credit for it before David. He's hoping that he can get rewarded. But so far from being rewarded, David has him executed for killing Saul. Euthanasia, which is a word that means good death, appears most to us in our culture as something often called doctor-assisted suicide. 
They're spoken of as being a mercy, ending suffering for the dying. But this is far different from palliative care like hospice, that is a true mercy, that seeks to alleviate pain and provide comfort. When we speak of euthanasia, what we're talking about is something that is designed to actively cause death. There's nothing wrong with end-of-life care that lessens suffering. There's nothing wrong with stopping life-prolonging treatments and letting death occur naturally. But when we take life and death into our own hands, we have broken this commandment. When we say, you know, it just, death is going to occur anyway, so let's just speed up the process. God does not look at that as mercy, but murder. Finally, we have to talk about suicide. You remember back a couple months when we were in Jonah, Jonah 4, Jonah had brought God's message of judgment on to Nineveh, and he then waited outside the city of Nineveh, hoping to see its destruction. But because Nineveh repented, God was merciful, and Jonah was not happy about it. In Jonah chapter 4, we read, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah wants to die. He asks God to die. We can see this also if we looked at Elijah, if we looked at Job. They make similar requests of God. But God doesn't, doesn't allow that. He says, do you do well to be angry? And for the same reason that euthanasia breaks this commandment, you shall not murder, it's the same reason that suicide breaks this commandment. We did not give ourselves life. And we do not have the authority to take our own lives. Now I want to address something about suicide in particular before drawing a larger point from all three of these violations. A lot of people will believe that suicide is an unforgivable sin. That there's no hope for someone who committed suicide. But that's simply not true. Suicide is a terrible sin. It is murder. It's self-murder. But it is not unpardonable. There are branches of theology, Roman Catholic theology in particular, teaches that suicide is unpardonable because... Once you've committed it, you have no, no ability to repent. 
But our salvation is not dependent upon whether or not we've repented of every single sin just before we die. Our salvation is dependent upon Jesus Christ, who through his Holy Spirit makes us alive to a lifetime of repentance. I remember something John Piper said many years ago. And I thought it was a really good example for explaining why suicide is not explicitly an unpardonable sin. He said, if I get into an argument with my wife, and I'm angry, and I get into my car and speed off in a rage, and run directly into a telephone pole and die, I'm not going to hell for dying because I had no chance to repent before I died. It's not an order of events. It's not a time thing. I say that because I don't want anyone here to think that Jesus is unable to save even a deeply broken sinner, even a sinner who is so caught up in their sins that they take their own life. But we do need to know that suicide is a sin. And it's actually good news for us to know that God considers it a sin. Because if we just think, it's, if, if we just think that suicide or abortions or euthanasia are a difficult choice, a personal choice, terrible circumstances, well, then we will think that we have to deal with them. On our own. But if we recognize that these are sins, then we can see that the temptation to these sins is something God tells us He will deliver us from. There are loads of verses in the Bible about resisting temptation that we can bring to bear for ourselves or for others who need to hear it. Here's just one 1 Corinthians 10 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's true whether we're talking about suicide, euthanasia, abortion. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, our culture reserves the right to break this commandment because we think that this is just my choice. A lot of times is how it's spoken of. Our culture, people in our culture, think it's my personal decision. And we may sit here in the church and think, thank God that I'm not like all those people who commit such sins as these. But Jesus doesn't let us get away with it. Look, look at what Jesus does with this commandment. I read this earlier, but I'm going to read it again from Matthew 5. 
verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So far, so good. We can agree with that. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, you shall not murder is the first commandment in the ten that seems pretty easy for us to obey. At least I think so. We, we, we may be honest enough with ourselves. Maybe. If we're honest enough with ourselves, we can say we have not kept the first five. We haven't worshipped God and only God in the way that he desires. We have not kept his name holy or observed the Sabbath day. We haven't honored our parents as we ought, but hey, at least we've never murdered anybody. And then Jesus asks us, have you ever lost your temper? Have you ever raised your voice? Have you ever cussed anybody out? Nursed a grudge? Held on to bitterness? Well, then you're not doing as well as you might think. Jesus tells us that being angry, holding a grudge, is the sin of murder in God's sight. Now you can stop your ears and close your heart off to this truth. As I already said it, the Bible isn't far removed. It's not something, just a historical account for us. It's God himself speaking by his word. You can listen to him now, or you can wait to listen till Judgment Day. But Jesus is saying, so far from thinking, I'm doing well because I've never murdered anybody, he, he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. What's going on in your heart? What would you do if you could get away with it? What do you think about Your anger is killing you. Your bitterness is killing you. Your grudge-keeping is killing you. Listen to the voice of Jesus. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Hell of fire. What does Jesus do with this commandment? He amplifies our understanding of it. He shows us, in speaking about it in the Sermon on the Mount, that this commandment goes all the way into our hearts. And looking into our hearts, we can see that we are murderers in there. But that's not all that Jesus did with this commandment. Jesus kept this commandment. Never, never did Jesus lose his cool. Never was he controlled by his temper. Never did he hold on to and nurse bitterness or a grudge. When he was on the cross dying, he looked at those who were killing him and said to his father, pleaded with his father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. 
Jesus was condemned to death under this commandment so that murderers could live through him. So as a way of a conclusion, let's just go back and look at two important points. The first is that God will never put you in a situation where you have to break this commandment. God will never put you in a situation where you have to break this commandment. That again is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Abortion, euthanasia, suicide, none of these options are God's choice for you. He will never put you in a situation where that's your only option. Because they are sin. We know there's sin from this commandment. But because they are sin, and that's not God's choice, hope, desire, He will always give you a way out of them. Secondly, Jesus is the only one who can free you from your murderous heart. Because it's not just abortion and euthanasia and suicide that break this commandment. It's anger, bitterness, name-calling. Your sin, your anger, is murder in God's sight. And murder carries the sentence of death. All murderers will receive capital punishment. This would be unbelievably harsh if it were not Jesus himself who said it. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It still strikes us as harsh. But it must be believed because of who is speaking. We're going to see this throughout the rest of the commandments as Jesus deals with them, as the New Testament deals with them. But your sin is not a little thing. Your sin deserves death. And when God came down in Jesus Christ in order to free you from your sin, you killed him. Your anger killed Jesus. Your bitterness killed Jesus. Your name-calling killed Jesus. When the best chance we have to do away with our sins comes to us, we killed him because we love our sins more than him. And then God raised him from the dead because that capital punishment for sin had been served. God was at work to free sinners. It is true that your anger killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead to free you from your anger. Your bitterness killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead to free you from your bitterness. 
Your name-calling killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead to free you from your name-calling. Jesus is the only one who can free you from your murderous heart. Have you gone to him for that? When Nicodemus the Pharisee comes to Jesus in the night to ask him what's going on, what's Jesus about, what's he doing? Jesus tells him that you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how? How can I be born again? Can I, as an old man, go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And he plucks an image out of Israel's history. Israel had sinned and broken God's commandments and God had sent a plague of fiery serpents. They bit the people and the people who were bit died. The people repented and God said to Moses, Here, make for yourself a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and everyone who looks at the serpent will live. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what are you going to do? Are you going to hear Jesus amplifying this commandment and think, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's just too harsh. That's too much for me. I'd rather have my anger and my bitterness I'd rather have it my way. I'd rather do what I want. Or are you going to look further up? Further up at a cross with a man hanging on it. And see him who died for your sins to free you from your sins. Have you looked at him? Have you seen him? Not with your eyes, not some picture painted by some human. Have you looked at Jesus as he reveals himself in his word, as he comes to us by his spirit, and believed in him and received eternal life? God is faithful. Trust him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you take take out hearts of stone? Give us hearts of flesh. Would you take and write your law upon our hearts? We would believe you, we would love you, that we would obey you. Would you do it through the death 
the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is ascended on high, seated at the right hand of all power and authority, who intercedes for us. Would you do it on his account, on account of his prayers, on account of his pleadings, on account of his blood, to make for him a bride as you promised, as you intended, to make for him a people that he would wash them, purify them, make them new and presentable to you, his Father. Would you do this by your mighty power who created all the worlds by your word? It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen.